And uh, while you make your way back to your seats, uh, let me just introduce myself. Uh, my name is Will. Um, you may remember me from my previous bearded form. Okay. Uh, a tragedy happened this morning, um, and that was the guard to my razor was not on my razor, and so half my mustache disappeared. So the rest had to disappear. And uh, yes, uh, in, in, a, in a nice fitting way, I did it all for a sermon illustration because today we're talking about suffering, right? Um, yes, uh, yeah, so it's gonna be some fun. We're gonna talk about suffering, all right? Um, and we've already seen this subject come up uh, in the first chapter of 1 Peter, right? We're gonna see it again here in chapter two. And then guess what? We're gonna see it again in chapter three. We're gonna see it again in chapter four. And we're gonna see it again in chapter five. This is a massive theme in 1 Peter. One that Peter clearly thinks is absolutely instrumental for the early church to understand. And this isn't just a, a 1 Peter thing, right? When we have the lens to see it, this theme of suffering as a Christian is everywhere in the Bible. But by Peter expressing this over and over and over again, he is trying to give the hearers of this letter a roadmap for what to expect in the Christian life. And I think one of our issues as the modern church is we are regularly given the wrong roadmap. 21st century Western Christianity often presents a roadmap to the Christian life that is skewed from what the Bible gives us. And it affects what we expect life to be, what we put our hope in, and what we deem success as Christ followers to be. Then, when suffering regularly comes upon us, it seems strange, seems confusing, and we don't know what to do with it. I'll explain more in a minute what I mean by that, um, but let me give you this to start. As Christians living in a broken world, part of the life that God has intentionally called us to is a life as obedient, suffering servants. Part of the life that God has intentionally called us to is a life as obedient, suffering servants. I don't want this to be a sermon just about learning to cope with righteous suffering. That's just the tip of the iceberg the true depth of the iceberg that Peter leads us to in this text is so much bigger and more beautiful than just coping with suffering. What I want to do this morning is give us a vision of the depth of what God is doing underneath and through that life as obedient suffering servants. Why is that our walk as Christians? To what end? And how are we to walk it out? So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll take a look. Father God, I, I pray and I ask, God, would you please do what preaching cannot do? God, by your spirit, would you please open up your word for us to understand? Help us to see you out of it. God, I pray that you would you would soften our hearts and help you help us to see you in this word and be changed by it. And we need you to do it. 
So we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, last week, Russ talked to us about our submission to authority as Christians. And now I'm going to contradict everything he had to say. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Russ, Russ nailed it. He nailed it. Uh, he just stopped recording the podcast there, you can see. Uh, no, Russ helped us to see from the text that as Christ followers, we are a people of submission. Not ultimately to human institutions, but to the Lord. We live lives that are submitted to, to, uh, to God as bondservants for his sake, as visitors in this land. We submit ourselves to the authorities of this land because of it. We don't just do it to get by here, but by honoring the emperor, we're honoring God. That there is something greater at work in our submission here to authority figures and to where Peter goes next. So let's take a look at verse 18. And Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, the word translated as servant here can be understood as house slaves or bond servants. And my hunch is none of you are either of those. So let's just spend a minute on context, all right? So the Roman institution of slaves or bondservants was different from the institution of slavery in North America that we're more familiar with, and we would do well to be mindful of that while we read this. Slavery in this context was not an institution based on race, for example, but often came as a result of being captured in war. They were usually permitted to work for pay and save enough to buy their freedom, there was also no middle class at this time, right? So you had, you had the uber-rich, and you had the poor. And it was common that when the poor faced severe economic hardship, they would sell themselves into slavery in order to survive. Servants worked in the mines, but they also were teachers and doctors and musicians. It wasn't uncommon for bond servants to, to even be better educated than their masters, and so it was possible for you to be a bondservant in this institution, and if you were under a good master, for, for it to actually be a redeeming thing in your life. But obviously, no man or woman should have this extensive authority over another human being. This is the result of a broken world. And what was often the reality was that slaves were often mistreated by their masters greatly. We can only imagine the helpless, defeated feeling that you would have to be a servant under the authority of a cruel, unjust master. And Peter says, if that's you, Christian, for as long as you're in this broken world and this is your context, even if your master is unjust, be subject to them with all respect. Man, this is, this is so alien to our 21st century years. And on face value, this seems quite cruel, cold, perhaps even pro-slavery. 
I have to be brief here, but let me just say Peter is not condoning slavery. While he doesn't call for its abolishment here, it's the principles of Christianity and the intrinsic value of all human beings that we see in the Bible that eventually lead and empower its abolishment. abolishment. If Peter had said to this servant, look, leave your cruel master, right? We need to realize that that probably would have meant the servant's death. In this society, the master legally had ownership of his life. And if he was caught in in his leaving, then he would have been punished. But society at this time also wouldn't have been able to support servants who had left. It would have meant that they were destitute. So Peter, he's not being cold and cruel. He's thinking about what is ultimately best for a Christian that's in this position in a broken world. Now, our society doesn't have masters and slaves, but we do have bosses and we have landlords. We have coaches. We have societal structures. We have parents, right? The teens know what I'm talking about. Talk about unfair masters, right? We have various authority figures that we subject ourselves to. Like Russ said last week, submission is a, it's a universally disliked thing for us. But man, it seems especially primed in our culture. Like, ain't no one allowed to tell somebody else how to live their life, right? I mean, your boss is mistreating you. You don't deserve that. You tell them off. You go and make your own way in the world. And look, at if, if your worldview is that there is no God and that this is your only life, then that makes sense. I mean, if you think being in charge of your life is what's best and this is your only life, then it would be insanity to submit yourself to an unjust master. Right? But that's not our worldview. And I think Peter did something intentional for us to to see it in the text here. If you look back at verse 16, where Peter said, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as servants of God. Then down to verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. See, Peter, he's reminding us, family, that we are bondservants of God. In our destitute position of need, God purchased us in full for himself. He is our true master. And he is good and gentle. It is because I'm ultimately submitting to God as my master that empowers me to submit to unjust authority, right? The unjust earthly master isn't working for my good. Not ultimately. He won't rightly credit my submissive servitude. But he isn't my true master. My true master sees all, and he is just. Whatever done wrong to me, he will judge and make it right in the end. He's always working for my good and he doesn't miss anything. 
I can suffer through whatever unfair treatment because I trust my true master to rightly judge every wickedness and reward everything deserving of reward. All right, so that's, that's what empowers us to submit to earthly authority figures, that God is our good master. That's how we do it. But why do we do it? What purpose does God have in this? Look at verse 19 with me. He says, For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. First things first, there are causes for our suffering in this world, um, many different causes. And one of those causes for our suffering is because sometimes we're idiots. Like, it's because of our own doing. We sin, and then there are consequences. Like, if I cheat on my wife, and then our marriage starts to fall apart, and a domino effect of suffering happens, that's not unjust suffering. That's suffering by my own hands. And our cultural context is a victim mentality, right? Nothing, nothing ever seems to be our fault. We blame everybody around us, and we play victim so often. So we have to fight against the, the current of our culture and actually own our stuff. There is suffering that comes from our own foolishness, and Peter says it's of no credit to us when we suffer as a result of our own sin. But, here at the Sassane, there are kinds of suffering that we endure as Christians that is a credit to us. And so, students of his word, the next thing we have to answer from this text is, what does he mean by credit? Like, what reward from God do we receive in unjust suffering? Some commentators I was reading suggest this refers to the reward of salvation, which in fact is a, a fantastic reward, but I don't think he would use the word credit here if that were the case, because that's not something we earn. Others suggest credit is referring to heavenly rewards, which I think is more on point. Peter has been trying throughout 1 Peter to fix our eyes on our eternal reward on our inheritance with Jesus in our forever home. Our heavenly rewards are through a real thing that the Bible talks about numerous times, including from Jesus himself, who talked about rewards that come from unjust suffering. Heavenly rewards can be a tough thing for our earthly mind to grasp, I think. And I'm not going to be focusing on this today, so let me just say quickly, if you want a good read on this topic... Check out Jonathan Edwards' uh, work on uh, um, heavenly rewards. I mean, he does a fantastic job reminding us that things like envy, jealousy, greed, they won't be things in heaven. So we can freely enjoy heaven with varying rewards because those don't exist. So I, I think it's the right interpretation. All I would do is expand that out to be something that's a little bit more all-encompassing, right? To say that 
It's reward that God gives either in the present or in the future. It's credit that corresponds with sanctification here or glorification in heaven or both. And I say that for a couple of reasons I see in the text. First, in in verse 19, we see it's a credit only when we are mindful of God. So it, it depends in part on our mindset in the matter. Like, if we suffer with a mindset that's set on ourselves, we won't see this credit, which seems to me to perhaps fit better with some good that God is doing in us that we experience in the present. Second thing, twice Peter says that this unjust suffering is a gracious thing. When the Bible repeats something, it it means for us to really take notice. This is purposeful phrasing that Peter uses twice. It makes us take notice and we think, gracious? Really? Unjust suffering? This is... This is grace? This is God's unmerited favor at work? His kindness at work in our life? Like, what is God doing that makes unjust suffering as submissive servants a gracious thing? Look at verse 21 with me. Remember, the the fours in the Bible are there to tell us the reason for things, right? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God for or because to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is what you've been called to. So that you might follow in his steps. Man, our deepest desires change when we become Christians, don't they? I know mine did. Man, I was was living purely for things like personal happiness, comfort, money, likability with peers, pleasures in all the wrong places. And then God's Spirit started to produce something else in my heart. And I started to desire things that my family and friends thought were really weird, right? Like, I didn't want to go to parties. I wanted to stay home and read the Bible. Will's lost his mind. I didn't want the things of the world anymore. What I wanted most, more than anything else, was to follow Jesus. Man, my deepest desires were changed to wanting to know God, be near God, and to be more and more like God. These are the redeemed, spirit-born desires of a Christian, right? These aren't our natural desires, but man, when God saves us, he puts his spirit inside of us and changes our desires, our deepest core longings for life, change. God gives us the desires of our heart. And so the deepest longings of our soul begin 
to be for things like intimate nearness with God. We say along with the psalmist in Psalm 16, in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. And we long to know God. We say along with Jesus in John 17, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. And our redeemed longings are to be more like Jesus. We say along with Paul, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. Jesus says to us, like he did to Peter, come and follow me, and we say, yes, yes, that's what I want. More than anything, I want to be near you, God. I want to know you. I want to be more and more like you, to follow Jesus in his steps. And listen, this is what God has called us to. By God leading us into the steps of Jesus through suffering, God is fulfilling all of those deepest spirit-born desires in us, which is our greatest good. To see that a bit clear, let's, let's look at the life of Jesus. This is where Peter goes in the text next. For the next four verses, Peter is drawing language about Jesus out of Isaiah 53. By the time Peter wrote this, Isaiah 53 was firmly established in Christian tradition as a text that pointed to the sufferings and exaltations of Jesus as the Messiah, and probably the clearest example to do so. When God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, wanted to most clearly show his people what the Messiah would look like, what the ultimate servant of God would look like, what God himself in, in human flesh would look like, this is what he says. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. Down to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Who was this Messiah to come? What would his life be marked by? The coming Savior of God's people was at his core an obedient, submissive, suffering servant. Unlike the Israelites who grumbled and rebelled as soon as they saw the lightest of suffering, this Messiah would be perfectly obedient, fully submissive to the Father. And not submissive to an easy, worldly, blessed life, but through a life filled with suffering. 
and suffering not for his own sake or suffering he deserved, but he was to suffer unjustly for us. Despised for us, stricken for us, pierced for us, by his wounds we are healed. And now as we look some 2,700 years later on this side of the cross, we see the life of the Messiah in full clarity. The life of Jesus, the Messiah, was marked by obedient submission to the Father. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Even though it meant unjust suffering for us. In order to fully pay for our sins, Jesus needed to live a perfectly obedient life that we couldn't. And true obedience, perfect obedience, is displayed not by obedience through ease, but when the king of kings submits to a life as a servant that submits his life to suffering the full weight of the world's sin that he doesn't deserve in obedience to the Father and love for us. Jesus was and is the obedient suffering servant. And whose spirit now lives inside of you, Christian? The spirit of Jesus. The spirit of the suffering servant. And his spirit is at work in you to make you more like him. He is revealing Jesus to you that you might know him as the suffering servant. And he's intimately drawing near you as the spirit of the suffering servant leads you in the steps of the suffering servant. It's a gracious thing. It's a gracious thing to unjustly suffer because through obediently submitting as suffering servants, God is accomplishing our greatest good. He is intimately drawing near to us. He's revealing himself to us. He's healing our wounds. He's making us more and more like him both now and in the age to come. Peter says following in the steps of Jesus through suffering is to what we have been called. That's Bible talk for chosen. God has chosen us to walk through suffering in the steps of Jesus. There are lots of things that produce suffering in our lives. Peter will make the connection in chapter 5 with our sufferings and the devil. Suffering comes from the hands of the evil intentions of man. Suffering comes from all kinds of places, but ultimately over all of that suffering, God alone is sovereign. Again, in 1 Peter 4.19, Peter says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God's sovereign will is over our suffering. He's not just trying to make the most of a bad situation. 
No, the author and perfecter of our faith has intentionally written out the roadmap of our Christian life to be one that's marked by suffering. Over the last couple years, God has used a book over and over again to encourage me in the midst of various trials. It's really reshaped how I look at suffering. It's called J-Curve, Dying and Rising with Jesus in Everyday Life. I would highly recommend it. Uh, But let me just put up a couple slides and show you something uh, from the book. When I say we often have the wrong roadmap to the Christian life, this is is what I mean. Am I right in the middle of that? You get a little bit of my hat. Um, When I think about my desires for my life, right, what I pray for, what I hope for, what I expect God to do, what I think success looks like as a Christian, this is, this is often what it looks like. It's like the more I live a God-honoring life, the more he is sure to bless it. And I translate that blessing as, as better ministry success, a healthy family, consistent joy, better relationships, job promotions. This is what nailing it as a Christian looks like in my heart. This is what I think is best for me. And then when suffering comes along, let's say a boss treats me terribly to keep in theme with our our servant and master, and he demotes me even though I didn't deserve it, it feels like a step backwards, right? Something getting in the way of what I'm hoping for. Maybe even that God is punishing me for something. But at the very least, this suffering is a step in the wrong direction, and something I just have to endure until I can get back on track. When we look at the life of Jesus, though, Paul Miller, the author in this book, says the roadmap to Jesus' life looks more like a J-curve, going down into death and up into resurrection. We see this in our, our text in Isaiah 53, and man, all over the place in the Bible, where Jesus, who is holy and committed no sin, humbles himself as a man, bearing our sin on the cross, which leads to resurrection and then glorification. And he does that, we see in verse 24, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Right, so the, the Father's intentional will for Jesus, his purposed roadmap was for Jesus to humble himself, enter into suffering for us, while he obediently trusted his Father, until God himself restored him through resurrection. Do we see that? But here's the thing, this wasn't just God's roadmap for Jesus' life, it's the roadmap for every follower of Jesus as well. Like Peter has reminded us that we've been born again. We are in Christ. We have died with him and we have risen with him. The life that we now live is united with his and reflects his. God has called us to walk in his steps. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Paul called it a sharing in his sufferings. That leads to repentance. Or sorry, that leads to resurrection. Peter calls it walking in his steps. Right? This, is, this is the roadmap God has called us to. 
But what makes our steps different from his steps, our J-curve different from his J-curve, is that Jesus' sufferings alone pays for our sins. And he has paid it in full. This is what Peter makes clear for us in our text. Verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It is done. It's finished. One sacrifice for all time. Your sufferings offer nothing in terms of payment for sins because Jesus has paid it. Jesus' sufferings alone make us justified or right before God. But as long as we are in this temporary place, this broken world, we're still being sanctified. Jesus is still at work in us today to make us more like him, to continue to heal our wounds. Jesus exemplified what obedience to God through suffering looks like. And now as we walk in the steps of Jesus through suffering ourselves, with the spirit of Jesus living inside of us, he's drawing near to us and we're being made more like Jesus in the process. Look, the main, the main thing I wanted to show you by putting those slides up is, is I wanted to just to present a picture to you of what the trajectory of the normal Christian life looks like. The normal Christian life of walking in the steps of Jesus is a life that repeatedly reenacts the dying and rising of Jesus. This is normal. This is what we expect life to look like. Nailing it as a Christian doesn't look like success as the world defines it. God loves us too much for that. It looks like faithfully following Jesus as he intentionally appoints Specific hardships, disappointments, trials, and even smaller inconveniences in our lives. And this is incredibly helpful for us to see this because it it places us. It helps us to see and remember in the midst of suffering that we're actually on the right track. God is doing something in us as we walk in the steps of Jesus. It's not strange And what's amazing about walking in the steps of Jesus is we know where the steps end, right? He was an obedient, suffering servant, but how does it end? It ends in resurrection and in glorification. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And this is what Peter was saying all through chapter one. That inheritance is yours, Set your hope fully on the resurrection. It's yours. It's guaranteed. It's coming. Resurrection joy is coming. You're in Christ. You have died with him and you will surely rise with him. And Jesus says in his kingdom... The first shall be last, and the last first. It's flipped from this broken world. It's those discarded most in this kingdom 
that will be restored highest in his. This is your credit. Resurrection joy. And not just then, but God is producing resurrection joy in us now. And you could look at the life of following in the steps of Jesus as one big J-curve, as it, as it were, um, but it's probably even more helpful to see it as a life of little J-curves, right, that make up one big one. Moments throughout our life where we die to ourselves and then God intimately meets us in it and we receive a taste of resurrection joy while we wait the big resurrection, let me just give an example from my life of, of, of what I mean, and then I'll give us a couple quick application points, and, and we'll close. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll preference my example by saying this isn't some kind of super example of what suffering is, all right? Uh, it's not about my beard. Um, man, I, just, I know some of you are walking through so much harder things than this. Man, but I want to encourage you that, that even in the seemingly small moments of suffering, God is at work in it. He sees it. He doesn't waste anything. Right? Those moments that are particularly difficult for you, God sees it. He's at work in it. And it counts for something. Okay, so here's my example. In 2016, God began to call uh, Sarah and I to follow him into, into full-time ministry. And ultimately, that meant moving to Ireland as church planners. Sarah and I said yes to following Jesus, and did life get easier? No, it did not. There was a near immediate increase in spiritual warfare in our lives. There was the immediate cost of, of having to leave really close friends, a very close church family. It was immensely costly. Right? Then we throw in some things like COVID as soon as we arrive. And then feelings of loneliness. And then throughout all of this, for me, came depression. Something that I have struggled with my whole life. But perhaps the toughest bout of it was in the last few years since being a Christian. But there were also things that were particularly hard to me that other people didn't see and wouldn't have thought much of. Let me just confess one of those. I have a fear of being a disappointment. I always have. But it was during the process of raising support to come here that I realized just how deep that fear ran, just how much it controls me, and how much it limits me. See, I learned how to handle that fear growing up. And it was by being really independent. Right? If I don't rely on people and people don't rely on me, I can't really disappoint them. And then, God called me to be a missionary. And now I am 100% dependent on other people to give in order for me to survive. And it killed me to do it. I'm sure it seems so insignificant to you, but man, for me, it was like this massive wound in my heart just got opened up that had been festering there my whole life. 
but my God loves me, and he is determined to heal me. And so he began cutting this cancerous tumor out of me. And man, if life kept going the way that I wanted, and I just kept nailing it as I, as I think that, it, that, that that looks like, that would still be at work in me today. And in years to come, I'm sure. But God loves me too much. And as I looked to him in the midst of my depression and hurt, he began to show me in new ways that there's one person I'll never disappoint. And that's my God. It's impossible for me to disappoint him because he knows me fully. And yet he still chooses to love me and work through me. Man, this was resurrection for me. And it came out of suffering. It was resurrection because God drew near me. I came to know him more. I came to understand him and I came to be more like him a little bit. But it was also resurrection for others. It's resurrection for my wife and kids because as God heals me, I become a better husband and a better father. Man, all of that while I learned to put my hope in the big resurrection. So again, I, I hope is an encouragement just that God is at work in, in the little things that, man, nobody else sees, but God sees. He's at work in these little resurrections in our life as he leads us in his steps to an ultimate resurrection. Let me just give you some application real quick. If you're a believer following Jesus and you find yourself stuck in some kind of suffering, here's a couple of steps that I would suggest of how to be mindful of God, as Peter said, in your suffering so that it is to your credit. Step one, locate yourself in this J-curve. Remember that this isn't strange. It's the normal roadmap for a follower of Jesus. You're in the steps of Jesus. God has you there for a reason. God is doing something in you through this. Okay, step two, ask God to take it away. We aren't masochists, right? Like we don't want suffering. Paul prayed for God to remove his thorn in the flesh, right? Three times. Jesus prayed for the Father to take his cup away. Pray for God to remove it. Or to help you see that maybe you're suffering by your own stubbornness. And I know sometimes I do this, like it's suffering that I could leave if I just walked out of it. And so we ask for help. Would you please take it away? Number three, if he says no... Embrace it. We submit to him. Not grumbling against God and against other people. But we entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. We ask for his help as we imperfectly do that. We say, God, this is hard. I don't get it. But your will, not my will. We accept this sharing of his sufferings. 
And then number four, we pray for, we hope for, we watch for resurrection. We remember that our God is a God of resurrection. We wait for it in our lives, in the, in the little moments. We ask him to help us see the little resurrections and take joy in them. And then to place our hope in the big resurrection. It's easy for my heart to get all eeyore and just only notice the suffering. So it's intentional. I have, to, I have to take moments and sit and look. Oh God, you were being good to me there. There was resurrection in my life there. Finally, like I said before, there are several reasons why we see suffering in our life. And some of it we probably need to just leave in a category as mystery. Like, I don't, I don't know all your stories, and I certainly don't know the depth of all of what you've been through. So please don't hear me easily explaining away something that you've gone through that's been tragic. But here's what I know to be true for you no matter what the suffering is. If you're in Christ, if you're his, a son or daughter of the Almighty, he will make it right. There will be a day when he will execute perfect judgment. Like Peter says later in chapter 5, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would encourage your people today, no matter where they are at. This might be really fresh for some people. This might be something they're not walking through at the moment. But I pray, God, that you would meet them wherever they're at. God, we thank you that you suffered for us. You took on God's judgment for us so that no matter what we go through as Christians, it's not because of judgment. You bore that. But you can also empathize with us. And so I pray, God, would you empathize with your people this morning? Would you help them to feel that and to know that you care, that you see it, that you are with them, and that it ends in resurrection? Thank you, God, for your word. We pray this in your name. Amen.